Exodus 19. I'm going to read you, follow along with me. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people of, to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, Take heed to yourselves <clears throat> that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Now a hand, not a hand, shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning, and there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud. So all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon, upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through and gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Also let the priest who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up upon the mount, um, I'm sorry, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away, get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, illuminate this word for us today. Lord, this is your word. This is the gospel. Lord, cause it to come alive in our hearts and in our minds that it would change us, that it would transform us, that it would renew our minds, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, do a work of conforming us to the very image of the Son of God. We ask this, that your church, that we, your people, would be a glory 
to you in this community and in the earth. Father, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in Exodus 20, I mean Exodus 19, we are now three months out from the Exodus. We're three months out from the night Israel left Egypt. It says, in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. This gives us the time frame for the events that are taking place here. Now, I want you to understand that God does not give reference to time just randomly. God references time for a reason. And he is referencing this time frame here because he is revealing to us something that is of importance. There is something important taking place here in this story. Historically, something important took place when the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai. But it's not just about the important event that took place for them on that day. This event also foreshadows what will be fulfilled in the future. It was at Sinai that Israel would receive God's law. This is where God gives the law to Moses. This is where the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, are given to Moses and given to the world. And so it was at Sinai that Israel would receive God's law. And Israel receiving the law foreshadows and it corresponds to the Feast of Pentecost that didn't start in the New Testament. The Feast of Pentecost was a feast that God gave. It was one of the original seven feasts that God gave to Israel. So we're going to see this later on. If you go on and you read in Leviticus, Leviticus chronicles in detail all of the things that God gave to Moses. And one of the things that God gave to Moses was the commandments and the ordinances concerning the feasts. And out of those seven feasts, there were three of those feasts which God commanded every male to appear before him. And here's how it's worded in your, in your Old Testament scriptures because this place didn't exist then. Well, it did, but it didn't. God said to Moses, in the place that I will choose for my name to dwell forever, command every male to appear before me. Well, that eventually came to be known as Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was the city where ultimately the temple was built. It was Jerusalem. It was that city where the temple of God was, that was that physical place that came to be known as the place that God's name would dwell forever. But even that city was a foreshadowing of something much greater. We read this, we just finished studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. And we see in Revelation, in the, the end of the book, in Revelation 19 and in Revelation 20, we see this picture of the holy Jerusalem descending down out of heaven, and it's called the bride of the Lamb. Well, we know God's not going to marry a city, right? Jesus is not going to marry a city. He's not marrying a bunch of buildings, but he is marrying a people. And so the Bible says of the church, that's you, saint of God, believer follower of Christ, you are called the church. You are called a lively stone being built up into a holy habitation. So Jesus isn't going to marry a city. He's going to marry a people. He's going to be joined to a people. Now, where does all of this end? It all ends in the church. The church in Christ being made one is the fulfillment of all this. But it begins right back here in Exodus 19. What would ultimately come to pass in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, all of this begins, it's pictured for us, it begins in this very event that we're reading about in Exodus chapter 19. And the culmination of what God initiated in Exodus 19, the culmination of that was not on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. It, it is 
the consummation of all things when the holy Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and all things will be made new and God will tabernacle, will dwell in and among his people and we will rule and reign with him on this earth forever and ever and ever. That's a real thumbnail sketch of ultimately what this is about. So this is the time frame. So God is giving us this time frame and Moses is recording this for us because we are to understand that this is not just standalone history. This isn't just some irrelevant history that your Bible has that now you don't need to worry about anymore because it doesn't apply to you. It absolutely applies to you because this is informing us, teaching us, foreshadowing for us the reality of what has happened now. It's the whole reason we're here today. We are the church. We are worshiping the Lord of glory. Christ has come. He is tabernacling among his people. How is he doing that now? He lives in you by the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. He's promised to never leave you, to never forsake you. His dwelling in you is not contingent upon you. His dwelling in you is contingent upon his promise that he has made. And God does not break his promise. God does not violate his word. So it was at Sinai that Israel would receive God's law. And Israel receiving the law foreshadows and corresponds to the Feast of Pentecost. It specifically points to the day of Pentecost when God poured out his spirit on all flesh and gave the people of God the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And we'll talk more about that as we go through this chapter. So verses 1 and 2 give us this time frame that's very important. Verses 3 through 6, we see that Moses goes up to God. When Moses goes up to God, we see the grace of God. This is a picture of God's grace. That Moses was allowed to go up and approach God. It's a picture of grace. That sinful man was allowed to approach God to come into his presence and God's grace is extended to Moses when God allows Moses to approach his presence and when God speaks to him from the mountain. So God didn't just allow Moses to come, but God actually speaks to Moses. This is the grace of God. And this is as it is with us. The only way that we can go up to God is because God has come down to us. God came to the mountain. Moses went up to God. Moses didn't go to heaven to God. God came down. The reason Moses was able to go up to God was because God came down to Moses. This is the same picture. This is the same reality we experience. We can go up to God because God has come down to us. In his grace, God has revealed himself, made himself known, and now speaks to us. How? Through rumblings from a mountain, through angelic visions and dreams. Remember, the best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. Hebrews 1.1. Let's read what it says. Is God still speaking to us today? Yes, he is. He's speaking to you right now. Hebrews 1.1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in past in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. How did God make the worlds? Through his son. Who is the son? Let's flip over to John, the gospel of John chapter 1. How does God speak to us now? He speaks to us now by his son. 
Who is the Son? John 1, 1, the apostle writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Your Bible is not God. This book you read is not God, but this book we call the Bible is the holy inspired word of God. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. This holy inspired scripture reveals to you the true and living word who is Jesus Christ. You will never come to know Jesus Christ apart from the word he has made known and revealed to you. You will never come to know and truly comprehend or see more than comprehending. It is you being able to see the life that God has revealed to us and given to us in his word. The living word, Jesus Christ, is revealed to us in this written word. This is why it's important for you. This is why God has not only taken the time over the course of centuries, but God has very purposefully preserved this word. And he's preserved it for us that we may know his son. God is revealing his word. God is revealing his son. God is revealing his truth and his salvation. Even in these pages of scripture we're reading here, Moses goes up to the mountain. It is a picture of God's grace. Moses hears the voice of God. God speaks to him from the mountain. And God commands Moses and tells Moses what he needs to do. And Moses comes down to the people, verses 7 through 9, Moses comes down and he calls for the elders of the people. And the elders and the people hear all that God commanded and they commit to follow the Lord. You are hearing the same things that Moses heard from God. We are reading the very words that Moses heard on the mountain. You ever been somewhere? I don't know if you like history or not, but... You ever been on a trip and you go to some historical place and you're walking there? Like maybe you went to, you know, if you've ever been to the Alamo. And you go to the Alamo and you're standing there and, and you, you, have you ever wondered, man, I wonder, wonder what all happened here. wonder what all was said here. Well, listen, we don't have to wonder what God said to Moses up on that mountain because Moses recorded it for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're hearing the very words of God given to Moses because the very words of God given to Moses are the very words of God given for us today. And Moses comes down and he commands the people. It says, then all the people answered together and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is what the people declare in response recorded for us here in verse 8. Then Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses goes up to the mountain. He says, go and command the people all that I'm telling you. Moses goes down. He calls for the elders of the people. And he says, okay, here's what God says. Are you guys in or are you out? Are you going to, are you going to covenant with God? Are you going to listen to the words of God? Are you going to obey the words of God? And the response of the people it says, then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then Moses goes, he leaves the people, he goes back up to the mountain. He goes to the God and he tells God what the people, how the people responded. Do you think God didn't know how the people responded? What's with all this back and forth? I mean, God is God, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. Why didn't Moses just say, look, God, you would save me a whole lot of trouble of going up and down this mountain. You know, I'm pretty old. 
what you already know what the people are going to say. You already know how they're going to respond. Do I really have to go up and down this mountain? You ever think that? God, you already know. Why do I have to ask you? Why do I have to pray if you already know? Why do I have to go through these things, God, if you already know? I'm not telling you I got the answer to that question. I'm just saying this is how God operates. Don't think you're the only person who's ever had those thoughts. God, why do you make me go through these exercises when we already all know you, you, this is kind of fruitless, isn't it? And God says, no, it's not actually. I've got a reason for everything. I've got a reason for calling you up to the mountain. I've got a reason for sending you back down. I've got a reason for making you come back up and tell me what the people said, even though I already know what they said. The real question is, do we trust God? Because God asks us to do things sometimes that don't seem to make sense for us because we think, because we're always thinking ahead of God, right? Well, now, God, let me, th let me think about this for a moment. Well, if you're really who you say you are, and then, then why are you, and why this, and why that? Stop that. Stop that. Because... If you were the author of your story, you could do that. But you're not the author of your story. He is the author of your story. He's the author of your faith. He is the author of history. That's why it's called history, because it's his story. And he's writing his story, and he's made you a part of it. Now, what we're called to do, just like the children of Israel were called to do, we are called to trust him. We are called to put our faith in him as he writes his story. Because his story is not about you and me. His story is about him. And he has made you and me part of his story. And the reason you and me are part of his story the reason we are a part of his story is because of his grace. God didn't have to make you. He didn't have to make me. He didn't have to make anybody a part of his story. But in his grace, he has done that. And in making us a part of his story, he has poured out his love into our hearts upon our lives. He has revealed himself to us and he did not have to do that. So Moses comes down to the people. He gets the answer of the people and he goes back to God and he tells the Lord what the people responded. And then God tells Moses, all right, Moses, Go back down and tell the people to get ready because on the third day, I am going to come down. And the people need to be ready on the third day. Now, kind of like time frames, the third month to the very day, here they are at Mount Sinai. In verse 10, we see this phrase, the third day. God's not coming down on the first day. He's not coming down the fourth day. He's not coming down the fifth day. God says, I'm coming down on the third day. And on the third day, the people need to be ready because I'm coming down on the third day. You should pay attention when you read your Bible and study your Bible. You should pay attention to times. When God says third day, you should mark that. When you begin reading in Genesis and you read through your Bible, you'll notice that the third day seems to be significant throughout Scripture. A lot of things happen on the third day. It was on the third day of Abraham and Isaac's journey that Abraham came to Mount Moriah where he was commanded to sacrifice Isaac. That was on the third day. On the third day, God says, I'm going to come down. You tell the people to be ready. So God commands Moses to consecrate the people. That word consecrate is just a word that means sanctify. That word sanctify is just a word that means to make holy, to set apart, get it ready. If the dish is dirty, clean it, because I'm coming. 
don't bring me dirty dishes. Consecrate. Go down and tell the people to consecrate themselves to be ready for the third day. So God commands Moses to consecrate the people so that they may be ready when God comes down to them. To consecrate, to sanctify, to make holy. Moses here is a type of Christ who consecrates us. Listen, God commands Moses to consecrate the people. This is a picture of Christ who consecrates us. We don't make ourselves holy. Christ makes us holy. We don't sanctify ourselves. We are only able to, to be sanctified because Christ ultimately is our sanctification. Now, I'm not saying you don't do something because you do. But you're only able to do something because of what God has done. Remember, Moses went up to God, but the only reason Moses was able to go up to God is because God came down to him. Yes, you are called to be sanctified, and you are called to sanctify yourself, but you can only sanctify yourself because Jesus is your sanctification. You're called to live a righteous life, but you're only righteous because Jesus is your righteousness. Apart from Jesus, you and I, I don't care how good we are on our best day, we are not righteous before God. I don't care how clean and pure as the wind-driven snow we might think we are. We are vile and defiled before God apart from Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone is our sanctification. So God commands Moses, this type of Christ, to go and to make the people holy, to consecrate them to make them ready to come into the presence of the Father. In Hebrews 10.22, here's what the writer of Hebrews says, talking about Jesus, who has become our righteousness and our holiness and our sanctification. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You might not realize it, but to a Jew reading that, this is a picture of the Old Testament law. This is a picture of the law of Moses. This is a picture of these ordinances and these things that they had to do. Sprinkle with blood and sprinkle with water. And then you sprinkle with the right blood and you sprinkle with the right water and you sprinkle with the right thing in the right place. And now you're pure. Now you're consecrated. But you're really not. It's just the grace of God that's covering everything. When you get down to the root of the issue, all that the law ever did was cover our sin. It didn't take away our sin. It didn't really actually make us holy and righteous. It was just a picture of God's grace all along. And so the command was to be ready for the third day. Jesus gave his disciples a similar command before he ascended to the Father to pour out the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, And being assembled together with them, Jesus, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then we see this picture of the bride having made herself ready. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, his wife, has made herself ready. God commands Moses, Go down and consecrate the people. Tell them to be ready for the third day. So Moses goes down, he he commands the people, they consecrate themselves, they get ready. In verse 16 and 17, we see Moses bring the people out of the camp to meet God. Now, you and I feel pretty safe sitting here reading about this, hearing about this. But if you read carefully what's taking place here, this would have been one of the most terrifying things you could have ever experienced. 
I mean, Moses is leading the people out of the camp and they're coming to this mountain that is covered with smoke. It's like a furnace just shooting smoke up into the sky and there's fire everywhere. They can see the glow of the fire and there's rumblings and thunderings and lightnings and the earth is quaking. And I would imagine the knees of the people were shaking because this had to be an extremely fearful thing. And it is because it records that they were exceedingly terrified. So Moses brings the people out of the camp to hear what God will say and what he will command. And God is going to give them his law. The law will not make them. Listen, church, the law does not make us. The law did not make them righteous, but it will reveal their need for righteousness. This is what the law does. The law doesn't make us righteous. So God didn't give the law as a way for us to become righteous. Just keep the law and you'll be righteous. No, the, the reality is it's impossible for you to keep the law. What the law does is reveal our need for righteousness and our need for a savior. The law is a burden that Israel will not be able to bear. But the law was given to be their tutor that will bear them and bring them to Christ. This is what Paul writes in Galatians 3.24. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So Moses bringing the people to meet with God is not a picture of the law bringing us to God. It is a picture of Christ the law bringing us to Christ, the law giver and the law keeper. And it is Christ who brings us to the Father. Remember Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the law became a curse to us, not because the law was bad, but because we are bad. The righteousness of the law is a curse to us in our unrighteousness. The law leaves us condemned and it leaves us hopeless, but Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. And now Christ is our righteousness and he is our holiness. And this is exactly what Jesus was telling the people when he bid all those who were weary and heavy laden, Matthew 11.28 and 29, to come to him and he would give them rest. Take unto you my yoke, which is easy, and my burden, which is light. Come to me, and I will give you rest. The Lord was coming down to give Israel the law, and God's law was to lead God's children to Christ. For Christ alone is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, we do not fall upon the law, but we fall broken upon the rock, who is the fulfillment of the law for us. Everything God does here is a picture of Christ. God could have come to them in the plain, but he came to them in the mountain. It's a picture of this rock, not a small rock, massive rock. It's the mountain, it's the refuge that God calls us to, who is Christ. And the Lord descends in fire. Don't miss this. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was complete, completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and smoke and the whole mountain quaked greatly. The Lord descended upon it in fire fire. John the Baptist proclaimed that day that is foreshadowed here in this 19th chapter of Exodus. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist, it's recorded, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The same fire that will 
purify and purge and refine God's children is the same fire that will purify and purge the chaff of those who are not God's children. The same gospel that will bring you to salvation is the same gospel that will condemn you to God's wrath. Don't be mistaken about that. The good news is if you have come to the mountain, you've not come fearful for judgment. If you are trusting in Christ, you've come to the mountain of God to experience the fullness of his glory. You have been ushered into the presence of God to experience the fullness of his joy, not the fullness of his wrath. Because if you are trusting in Christ, the fullness of God's wrath fell upon his son. It will not fall upon you, even though we deserve it. The children of Israel come to Mount Sinai to receive the law of God and the timing of their coming corresponds to the feast of Pentecost. It was at Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ that God poured out his spirit on all flesh, baptizing them with fire and giving the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Pentecost marked it was the feast, the festival that marked the giving of the law. It's often called the Feast of Harvest because of the time of year that was in. But what that feast actually signified, what it actually memorialized was that day when God gave the law to the children of Israel. And at Pentecost, when God poured out his spirit after the resurrection of Christ, God gave a law to his children it was the law of the spirit of life in Christ. This is the law that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. The giving of the law to the children of Israel at Sinai foreshadowed the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church at Pentecost, which now gives to every believer the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ. You should mark that in your Bible. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ. That is the law we live under now. That is the law that rules us now. That is the law that has made a way for us where there was no way for us. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law what the law of Moses, what this law that we're reading about right here at Sinai, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Who walks according to the Spirit now? Verse 9 gives us the answer. Verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, Christian, then walk according to the Spirit. If the Spirit of God does not dwell in you, it doesn't matter how good of a sin manager you are. It doesn't matter how well you're able to modify your, beca your behavior, to look righteous, to act righteous, to do righteous deeds. If you are not in Christ, you are in your sin. And your sin has nothing to do with your behavior. And what I mean by that is your sin is not a product of your behavior. Your sin, your behavior is a product of your nature. Your sinfulness is a product of your sin nature. If you have been delivered from sin, from the law of sin and death, and you now live under the law of the spirit of life in Christ, you have become a new creation. And out of that new creation and out of that new nature, your life will manifest the fruit of the spirit. Did I say you and I are perfect? Absolutely not. Do we fail? Yes, constantly. Then what's our hope? Our hope is God's grace. Our hope is not in our ability to walk perfectly. Our hope and our faith is in Christ's 
already completed work because he has already come and he has already walked perfectly before his father. Christ is the law giver and Christ is the law keeper. How do I keep the law? I keep the law because I trust in the one, the only one who ever and will ever perfectly keep the law. And that is Christ. God commands Moses. This is what Pentecost is about. Pentecost is not about you having a second experience. Pentecost is about you understanding that when God saved you, he filled you with his spirit. He put his spirit inside of you and he delivered you from the law of sin and death. And now you live in and according to the law of the spirit of life in Christ. That reality of the spirit in you should produce all sorts of things. It should produce spiritual power. It should produce spiritual gifts. It should produce spiritual fruit. Most important of all is the fruit. Because if you are truly abiding in the vine, the true root who is Jesus, then the life of the vine should be flowing through you branch and your life as a branch abiding in the vine should produce the fruit of his spirit, his life that sustains you. God commands Moses to warn the people. And we see a vivid picture of God's grace, but this picture is not complete for the complete grace of God can only come through Jesus Christ. The only reason those people weren't absolutely annihilated there was because of the grace of God. It wasn't because they deserved to not be. They all deserved to be. They were all faithless. They were stiff-necked. They were complainers. They would believe God one day, and the very next day they'd question God and doubt God, and, and they'd be ready to kill Moses. Their unfaithfulness was on full demonstration. Don't think for one moment the only reason they survived that experience, it was because of God's grace. And no other reason. The law of Moses, by God's grace, would cover the sin of the people, but their sin still remained. Only through Christ can our sin be taken away. This was the declaration of John the Baptist when he saw Jesus. It's recorded for us in John 1.29. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John didn't say, Behold the Lamb who covers better than Moses did the sin of the world? No. The law covered Israel's sin, covered the sin of the people of God, but Jesus came to take away our sin. And if you are in Christ, your sin has been taken away. I didn't say you couldn't sin because you can. But who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your ability to not sin? Are you trusting in Christ? And out of your trust in Christ, there is a, a life, there is a power that resides in you, that works in you, that gives you the power and the ability to walk now in the will of God. Israel could look, but they could not touch the mountain. God says, don't let anyone even touch the base of the mountain. If anyone even touches the base of the mountain, they're going to be stoned or shot with an arrow. They'll become defiled. You can't even touch them. They'll be killed without any hand touching them. So get this picture. Israel is there called to come and meet with God. But God says, you can't touch me. You can't even touch the mountain. I'm cloaked in thick smoke. You can hear my voice. You can feel the quaking, but you can't touch me. How different now in Christ when Jesus tells doubting Thomas Recorded for us in John 20, 27 through 29. Remember the disciples are there and Jesus appears in the room and Thomas was just saying, well, I'm not going to believe he's really resurrected unless I can actually see him and actually handle him myself. Poof, Jesus walks through the wall. He's there and he says to Thomas, Thomas, blessed are those who believe having seen, but more blessed are those who believe having not seen. Look, handle me. Touch me. Put your fingers through the wounds and know that it is your Christ 
And Thomas handles him, touches him, falls down before him. And his response was, my Lord and my God. So now through a new creation, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we come boldly into the presence of God. We can not only now touch the mountain, but we are now made alive from the dead and raised up and seated in heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 2, 5 through 6. We are now ruling and reigning with him as he has put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. This is now true for us in Christ if we are members of his body of his flesh and of his bones this is the way Paul describes us in Ephesians 5:30 he said we are now members of his body of his flesh and of his bones there is no more graphic portrayal of our relationship with Christ than that right there he didn't just say we're walking side by side with Christ he didn't say we were holding hands with Christ he said you are members of his body of his bone and of his flesh you are literally knit to him, part of him, part of his life. You have become one with him in love, by grace, through faith. And apart from Christ, we face swift and certain death, but now we have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer you or I who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Now we abide in him and he abides in us. Listen to the words of the Apostle John. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect or complete in love. We love him because he first loved us. I always tell people there that perfect love is not your ability to love God perfectly because you can't. That perfect love there is us comprehending how completely and perfectly God loves us. If we know, if we have faith, if our trust is such that we know God loves us perfectly and completely, there is no valley of shadow, there is no hell hot enough, there is no ocean deep enough, there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. There is nothing that can overcome us, can overwhelm us, can ultimately conquer us because God has already conquered. He has already overwhelmed. He has already defeated death. He has loved you and that is why you love him. That's exactly what John writes. We love him because he first loved us. And if God has loved you, and your love for him bears testimony that he has. If God loves you and he doesn't love you any way except perfectly and completely, then what is it, Christian, that you have to be fearful of? And the answer is you have nothing to fear. Here is the reality. We may touch the mountain. In fact, we have been joined to it. God has made a way where there was no way through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him, come into the presence of God freely and with confidence, take refuge in the mountain of God and the rock of our salvation. Come to Jesus and live. That's my invitation to you. Come to Jesus and live. And God has made a way for that now because He has poured out His Spirit. He has baptized us with fire and put his spirit in us and delivered us from the law of sin and death and we now live according to the law of the spirit of life in Christ. I want to invite you to come to the table. The table of the Lord, we do this every week. This is 
This is one of the most important things that we can do as a body. We are called to come to the table together as a body. We're called to come to this table and to look around and to discern the body. Remember, Caleb did a really good little teaching on that. Discerning the body is not discerning that little piece of bread you're fixing to eat. It is discerning everyone around you who is the true body of Christ. You are the body. You are the feet that everything has been placed under. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Look around. You are the body. You are all necessary. You are all vital parts of God's functioning body. So come to the table and give thanks for his body. Give thanks for Jesus who gave his life that we may live. Exodus 19, this picture of Israel coming to Sinai is a picture of us coming to that day. Not a day 2,000 years ago because you and I weren't there. But we each have our own Pentecost. We each have our own Sinai. We each have our own experience. When God will baptize us with fire, when God will pour his spirit out into our hearts and we become his children and we are brought to the mountain not just to look but to see and to touch to handle and to partake because Christ is now our life you have been baptized with fire if you are in Jesus Christ. And if you are in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So I charge you, even as Paul the Apostle charges us, walk as children of light. Walk as those who have been given the power of God's fire, the power of God's spirit. Produce life, produce fruit as one that has been joined to the vine, the true vine, and so manifest his life, and so manifest his power, and so manifest his glory in this earth. Do it in this church. Do it in this community. Do it among your coworkers. Do it among your family. Do it among your friends, but wherever you go, carry his light, manifest his glory, and give witness to Christ. This is who we are. This is why we have been saved. Amen.